Before I get started on today's edition of the Men and Tides podcast, I wanted to take this moment to say thank you. A genuine and heartfelt thank you to those of you who listen to this podcast every Friday on YouTube and CastBox, who watch the short videos I do for the YouTube channel, and especially thank you to those of you who cared enough to check on me and make sure I was alright during the madness that was Hurricane Florence. Well, I'm happy to let you all know that I'm doing well, that my family is safe, that I am safe, that my cats are safe, and that the recovery process for me and my family will thankfully not be too much. Unfortunately, not everyone was as lucky as we were. Many other families were, and maybe even still are, stranded wherever they were staying, trying to stay safe from Florence's path of destruction. Many of them lost their cars, lost their homes, and even lost their lives due to the overwhelming floods, flying debris, fallen trees, and collapsed power lines. They were not as fortunate as I was, and they need all the help they can get. Please, if you have a giving heart, I encourage you all to contribute in any ways that you can to help those who were most impacted by Hurricane Florence. A little bit helps, no no contribution is too small or too big. Go online and check with organizations like American Red Cross, the Salvation Army, and any other credible organizations you can find that are helping in the recovery efforts for the people of North Carolina, South Carolina, and other towns, cities, counties, and states who have significant damage from the storm. Now is the time for us to be united and help each other. I'm doing my part. I hope you will too. Thank you. Now, let's do this. What's up, everyone? I am Julian, and welcome to the Menentites Podcast. This is part one of my five-part series talking about drumroll, please. Nice drum roll. That's right, I am talking about the Release the Snyder Cut movement. I am a big supporter and contributor to this movement, as we are several millions across the world, and this five-part series, I believe, will be my most meaningful contribution, at least for me. I'm a big fan of Zack Snyder. To me, he is a brilliant visual filmmaker, and I know that I'm not the only one who thinks that. Most anti-Snyder people like to say that he's all style and no substance, that he doesn't know how to tell a good story. Well, if you want to understand my feelings on that point of view, I recruit you all to check out the great video done by Matt and Shane of Comic Movie Marks. I will provide the link to their video in the description below. I have yet to be disappointed by a fully realized Zack Snyder directed film, and I say fully realized because, well, I'll get to that later, but some of you already know what I mean. Now, in order to truly understand the importance of this movement and why the Zack Snyder cut is so, I guess, sacred might be the appropriate word to use, why it is sacred to us fans of Zack Snyder and the DCEU. And yes, I am calling it DCEU, and I will always call it DCEU, so all of you World of DC punks out there can fuck off right now. Anyway... 
In order to understand all of this, we must first understand exactly what Zack Snyder had in mind with his vision for these films and this world he was building, or at least trying to build. As part of my research of this, for the series, in addition to reading up on several rumors, theories, and confirmed stories, I decided that I would watch the five films of the DCEU so far. I have prepared a lot of notes for you guys because I wanted to make sure that these five podcasts are as informative as possible, that they are entertaining, and that they do justice to Zack Snyder and his vision. Pun very much intended. With all that in mind, let's get this thing started. Kicking things off, we have the film that started it all, 2013's Man of Steel. In case you didn't already know by reading the title description and, you know, the music and seeing the logo on the screen, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube. Yes, Man of Steel, Zack Snyder's revisioning of the world's first ever comic book superhero, Superman. The story for Man of Steel was written by David S. Goyer and Christopher Nolan. Men who, who, of course, gave us the epic Dark Knight trilogy. What Goyer and Nolan did for Batman, making him a, a grounded and more gritty realistic portrayal of the Caped Crusader, that was their goal in creating this newer modern day take on the last, of, last son of Krypton. Now obviously Superman is an alien character, and as far as we know, aliens don't exist. But I feel that the way Goyer, Nolan, and Snyder approached this was done so beautifully and in a much more realistic manner than what they did in Richard Donner's Superman the Movie, written by Mario Puzo, who also wrote the Godfather trilogy, as well as the books that inspired those films. Now, don't get it twisted and think that I'm shitting on those films. Those films were my first introduction to the wonderful world of Superman, thanks to my father, as well as my oldest brother, and they will always always hold a very special place in my heart. However, and this is just my opinion, I believe Man of Steel to be vastly superior to the 1978 classic. Again, this is just my opinion. You don't have to agree with it, and that is okay. I just feel that Goyer, Nolan, and Snyder handled the concept of an alien living among us much better and much more realistically. I mean, think about it. If you found out someone was an alien from another planet, another galaxy, another universe, etc., would your reaction be much like the Superman the Superman the movie, where they basically were like, "Oh, you're from the planet Krypton? Cool. What's your favorite color?" Or would your reaction be more like what Perry White says in this film? Can you imagine how people on this planet would react if they knew there was someone like this out there? And if you say your reaction would be closer to the former than the latter, you are fucking lying. <laughs> because as Carmine Falcone said in Batman Begins, You always fear, but you don't understand. And I feel that theme seems to resonate very well throughout a lot of this film. Now, talking about the film itself, the opening sequence on Krypton was absolutely amazing, absolutely beautiful and was the perfect way to introduce us to this new incarnation of the characters that we all know and love so much. 
It sets the tone and the pace of what is to expect throughout the remaining 2 hours 30 minutes of this film. I don't know why I said remaining, because the film itself is about two and a half hours, so yeah. <laughs> anyway, as I said earlier, Zack Snyder is a brilliant visual director. At least he is to me. I mean, almost every shot of any Zack Snyder film would be a beautiful portrait you could display on a wall in your home. They look that amazing to me. I mean, Snyder has had great attention to detail in a lot of his films, very, and it's very much evident in this film as well. And he asks for the same from his production crew. Watching a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff on my Blu-ray copy of the film showed a lot of that attention to detail. The Kryptonian text displayed on almost every piece or set piece of Krypton, the Kryptonian ships, and even on the costumes worn, all created for this movie, they literally created a Kryptonian alphabet and language just for this movie. Again, great attention to detail. The props department, set designers, and visual effects team deserve so much credit for doing a spectacular job on creating this beautiful world for Man of Steel. No detail was too small or too big for this film, and that's just another thing I love about this, this great movie in general. I mean, seriously, do a Google search on Zack Snyder movies and you will find many beautiful images from this film and many of his other films. Now the cast I believe to be absolutely perfect and each each actor and actress was perfectly cast for the characters in this film. And I know other people will disagree with me but this is my podcast so I'll say whatever I want. We have Russell Crowe as Jor-El, Michael Shannon as General Zod, Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White, Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, Diane Lane as Martha Kent, Christopher Maloney as Colonel Nathan Hardy, Harry Lennox as General Swanswick, Amy Adams as Lois Lane, and of course the star of the whole damn thing, Henry Cavill as Kal-El, Clark Kent, Superman. Also, really neat thing that I learned while watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, I mean with the exception of Christopher Maloney, Harry Swanswick, uh, and Aaron Smolinski, who by the way played Baby Kal-El in Superman the movie, and a few select others. The military personnel featured in the film were portrayed by actual military servicemen, and that is apparently was a request from Zack Snyder himself. I don't know, I thought that was a really cool thing, and you know, for me it just makes me love Zack Snyder even more than I already do. Now, by the way, before and I talk more about the cast, I want to ask, how many of you have seen the documentary The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? It's a great documentary, I highly recommend it. It's directed by the late John Schnapp, who also was the creator of Metalocalypse. Now, in this documentary, he interviewed producer John Peters, and Peters was to be an executive producer or producer on the film Superman Lives, and he was also producer for Batman and Batman Returns, and I believe Batman Forever and Batman and Robin as well, I'm not too sure about that. Um, but as producer for Superman Lives, he had two very specific requests that he wanted for this film. The first one that comes to mind for me is that he wanted polar bears outside of the Fortress of Solitude, you know, to, I guess, act as guards or whatever it was that he was saying. You know, and then the second request he wanted was for Superman in the third act to fight a creature that had tentacles and he would, you know, fight, go through each tentacle one by one, try to get to the center where all these things are coming from. 
you know, and he and as he described it, he said it would have made an amazing sequence. Well, if you pay attention to the first act of Man of Steel, you know, it would appear that his he, John Peters got his wish, because when you see, you know, right before we follow up with Clark Kent in the Kryptonian scout ship, there's a very brief shot of a polar bears uh, outside of the scout ship, and then in the third act. We see Superman taking on the world engine, and coming out of the world engine are several tentacles trying to stop him from getting to the center of the world engine to, you know, in its terraforming process that it was going through. And as John Peters said, you know, it did make up for an amazing sequence. You know, I don't know if it was an intentional th thing, you know, like a nod to what Superman almost was back in 1998, or if it's just a coincidence. Ah, so something I noticed while watching these features. Uh, and also, John Peters actually does get an executive producer credit for Man of Steel. Though, I did also read that uh, Christopher Nolan, who was also executive producer of the film, that he did everything in his power as the producer of the film to make sure that Peters had absolutely no hands-on involvement with the production of Man of Steel. Uh, I guess he didn't want to have any issues like what they apparently had for Superman Lives. Anyway, back to this. You know, as I already said, I thought the film was perfectly cast. Everyone was perfect in their role. And I'll start with Michael Shannon as General Zod. I thought he was awesome in the role. I thought his performance was brilliant. That he really made it his own. That he really made the character his own. And it felt like he was born to play this particular character of General Zod. And the armor he wore looked amazing. And, also, and that was all CGI, by the way, you know, as was Superman's cape in several scenes. So, you know, and you can't even tell that that armor was CGI. It looked like it was real stuff crafted by the props department and costume designers for, them, for him. So again, great job, you know, and big props to the visual effects guys. And what I feel Shannon brought to the role of Zernal Zod was, I don't know, like a slight feeling of sympathy for Zod and his motives. You know, I guess you can kind of compare it to... Uh, Killmonger from Black Panther because a lot of people apparently sympathize with him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I get, I yeah, he was, General Zod was the villain and he was a little psychotic, but his motives were honestly a, a little bit understandable. You know, and as he says in the in the movie itself, his sole purpose for existing is the protection of the people of Krypton, and all he wanted was just to have his people back, to have his world back, so that he can fulfill his duty to protect it. I mean, sure, we wanted to achieve this at the extermination of humanity and mankind on planet Earth, but can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, right? <sighs> and Russell Crowe. He was, again, perfect choice for Jor-El. Absolutely perfect. And I know I keep saying the word perfect here, but it's just how I feel. I mean, and no disrespect to Marlon Brando, who played Jor-El in Superman the movie, um, but I mean, he didn't care about the role. He didn't care about the character at all. I mean, all he cared about was the big payday that he was getting from it, and and that's fine. That's that's perfectly fine. He was the kind of actor who did minimal work for the most pay, and that worked for him. You know, that was his thing. Now, not Russell Crowe, however, cared very much about the character, and I feel that it shows very much in his performance as Jor-El. And much like Michael Shannon, I feel like he made the character his own. And that is something that I'd love to see and want to see much more of in movies like this. 
I don't want to see actors trying to replicate someone else's performance. You know, I want them to do their own thing, to perform it their way, and not be some copycat. You know, but I think you know characters like this are going to be portrayed by countless people for generations and generations and generations to come. You know, but you don't want to be like, oh, he's trying to copy. Marlon Brando, or like, oh, Jared Leto's trying to be too much like Heath Ledger's Joker, you know, or Heath Ledger's Joker was trying to be like Jack Nicholson Joker, you know, and so on. You know, make it your make it your own if you're an actor. If you're taking on a role that's been done by other people, try to make it your own, make it uniquely yours. Oh. Anyways, now the interactions between Russell Crowe's Jor-El and Michael Shannon's Zod, you could feel that you know, they were at one point very close allies with the same dreams, but were driven apart by their different methods and those and the differences and and those methods, I feel is what drove General Zod to killing Jorel in the first act of the movie out of rage rather than his desire his own desire to do so. You know, and he even says that, you know, not a day goes by that, that his death doesn't haunt him. You know, and also to me this is very reminiscent of the relationship between Professor Xavier and Magneto and the X-Men comics, cartoon, and films. You know, they share the same beliefs, but work through different methods. You know, and I really love that aspect of the stories like this, you know, because it's believable and relatable. And we all have someone like that in our lives, right? You know, I know I certainly do. You know, I especially loved his interactions with Cal on the Kryptonian scout ship. I mean, to me, it was much better than Clark talking to a floating head projecting on a bunch of crystals and ice. Now again, that is not meant to be disrespectful towards Marlon Brando and Christopher Reeve. And you know what? Let's be honest here. If Superman the movie from 1978 was released in theaters as is, brand new for the first time ever, if it was the only Superman movie ever made, and it was made in today's Hollywood, the general movie-going audience you know, especially adults, would likely shit on it so hard for its cheesiness and its campiness and its hokiness and all that stuff. And I'm pretty certain at least one of you out there listening to this will agree with me. Now, and now we have Amy Adams as Lois Lane. Now, I think Amy Adams is a great actress, and she's absolutely beautiful, and I really love her as Lois Lane. And a big reason that I love this version of Lois Lane, you know, this version of the investigative reporter or investigative journalist whichever you prefer to call her is that she wasn't the typical damsel in distress where we've become used to seeing throughout the shows movies and cartoons and comics of of superman and also she wasn't unrealistically naive to clark kent being superman you know that, that again that is not meant to be in any way they're disrespectful to Margot Kidder, may she rest in peace, and the other actresses that played Lois Lane previously. You know, I loved Margot Kidder, and I loved, uh, what's her face? Terry Hatcher, from the Lois and Clark TV show. Now, I loved, I loved them as, as Lois Lane, and Margot Kidder, she was my first Lois Lane, and I will always love her for that famous... You, and I love all these women who have played the role before. And that will never change. I just really like Amy Adams. That's all. I'm a big fan of her. <sighs> and again, like I said, this is, you don't have to agree with me because what I'm saying is all my opinion. 
Now let's talk about Superman's Earth parents, Jonathan and Martha Kent. Martha. And Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent was another great choice to play the Earth baby daddy of Kal-El slash Clark Kent. And fun fact, also, that both actors who played fathers of Superman, you know, uh, Russell Crowe and Kevin Costner, that they both played Robin Hood. I don't, know, I don't know if that was an intentional casting choice or just a coincidence, but I think it was pretty cool. Yeah. And I've always been a fan of Kevin Costner, even though he hasn't always had the best track record of films. <coughs> what a world. <coughs> Sorry, I had something in my throat. Uh, but I've loved a lot of his movies, such as Field of Dreams. Every that's everyone's favorite, right? Bull Durham. Dances with Wolves, For Love of the Game, very underrated film directed by Sam Raimi, and as mentioned earlier, Robin Hood, his film being Prince of Thieves. And much like Russell Crowe, you can feel like, Kevin, like Costner genuinely cares about the character. And to me, he displayed a genuine emotion in playing the protective father of Clark Kent and wanting to shield him from humanity's rejection of his different abilities. Now, I'm sure those of you who have children can certainly relate to that need to protect them from the evils of the world. Now, I don't have any children of my own yet, so I can't say that I truly understand that feeling. But I definitely felt it when watching him and Clark Kent, you know, Jonathan Kent and Clark Kent, interacting throughout the many flashback scenes in this film, from young preteen Clark to young adult Clark. And to me, it felt like a real relatable father-son relationship. I don't know how many of you, you know, felt it, but I definitely did. And Diane Lane as Martha Kent. Martha. Sorry if that's annoying you guys. I'll stop now. Uh, I felt the motherly love from her performance as Clark Kent's mother. You know, Diane Lane, she's a great actress, so I've loved her in almost everything I've ever seen her in, so I knew I wouldn't be disappointed by her performance here. Uh, I also really like that we saw more of her than what we're used to seeing in previous uh, Superman films, where especially when she's like a very older, elderly old lady, and we, you know, very weakly, and we don't get to see much from her. Uh, and I hope we'll get to see more of her in future DC films. Uh, and the last casting that I'll talk about is the most important of this film, and that is Henry Cavill as Cal el Clark Kent Superman. Now, I will admit that when I initially learned of him being selected for the role back in late 2011 or early 2012, I can't remember when it, the news broke out, I was a bit unsure about him because at that point I'd never seen him before. You know, I didn't know who he was. I didn't watch him on Tudors, and I had not seen him in the movies, the movie Immortals. So I wasn't sure if I would like him in the role. But then I saw that first trailer for, the, for Man of Steel, and... And I was all in. Pun intended. Uh, well, yeah, I was all in. No pun intended. You know, I didn't get to s see it when it was in theaters. I didn't get to see Man of, Man of Steel when it was in theaters. Because I was too busy with work during its run in theaters. And well, there was a lot going on in my life at the time as well. Uh, but I did get the Blu-ray of the film as a birthday gift later that year. Got to watch it on my birthday. And I absolutely loved it. And fell in love with everything about this movie. You know, and Cavill's performance as Superman in this film, uh, to me, is felt very relatable. You know, because he was portraying the 
the world of being an outsider, trying to find his way. And and I'm sure like many others like me, you know, felt very much like this in our adolescent years, especially through high school. And even in the years after high school, I've had my moments where I still feel like the outsider. You know, so I relate, related to his struggle and f with finding his purpose in this world and learning who he is. You know, and he was still adjusting to his abilities and learning how to be Superman. And that is an aspect of the character that I really enjoyed seeing rather than him being perfect on his first day on the job. And that is what this movie pretty much really is. Superman's first day on the job. Now I know a lot of people complained that the film was too dark, too serious, too much destruction, and some people even saying that Superman acted like an asshole. To those people I say, were you even watching the same movie I was watching? I mean, to me, it was not too dark. In fact, I don't think it was even dark at all. Wonder Woman was a much darker movie than Man of Steel, if you actually pay attention to it. Yeah, too serious? I don't think so. To me, it was the right amount of serious, balanced out with humor at appropriate moments. Which is the opposite of many films of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where almost every scene needs to have a joke inserted at some of the most awkward and inappropriate moments. Especially in the middle of a big battle, like an Infinity War and Age of Ultron and the first Avengers film as well, but especially Infinity War, you know, with the fate of the universe at stake. You know, we have that little moment in, in the middle of the battle on Wakanda of Captain America and Thor, like... You hear okay? Notice you've copied my beard? <sighs> Why do we need that? I mean, I'm not saying that humor shouldn't be in superhero movies. I mean, it, it should be, you know. But what I'm really saying is that it doesn't need to be forced into every scene at the, you know, at the expense of killing the, the mood and the tone of the film. Because it can ruin the overall experience for, for some people. And I've talked to a lot of people who, who have felt that the humor in the MCU becomes too much and too forced. And it really takes you out of the story. Now, regarding the claims of some people saying that Superman was an asshole, I ask again, were you even watching the same film that I was? I mean, this complaint, you know, comes from, you know, the idea, the misguided idea that I've, that I've heard from a lot of people, that he didn't save enough people, that he didn't smile enough. I mean, to me, this is all based solely on the misguided idea that the Christopher Reeve portrayal of Superman with always smiling and saving cats out of trees and being the cowardly Clark Kent, you know, whenever he's around Lois Lane, that he is the true and definitive version of the character, and that is simply not true. Again, no disrespect to Christopher Reeve, rest in peace. Uh, who, he used to be a client of my dad. When my dad was alive, he was an accountant, was a, worked with a lot of celebrities like him. But, you know, not gonna talk about that right now because it's not my story to tell. Um, but again, it's, his performance as the character is not the true and definitive version, because there have several been several incarnations of Superman throughout the last yeah eighty years of Superman, and you know there's to me there with all those different versions of the of the character there is no true absolute version of him. You know, I mean unless you want to resurrect the Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, the people who created the character. You know, and ask them what the, what the real Superman is. So, yeah. 
And hell, even Richard Donner, the man who directed the 1978 superhero, you know, classic, Superman the movie, even he said that he wanted to make a more serious film about Superman, but that apparently Warner Brothers demanded it be a lighter tone, family-friendly story. Now I'll return to that subject a little later on in the series. Now, if you want to see Superman being a dick, I encourage you to all to go back and watch Superman 2, the original Superman 2, from, I believe, 1980? I'm not sure. Whatever. I don't care. You know, in an early scene in the movie, he's bullied by a patron of a bar, you know, and he was powerless at this point in the story, you know, and he couldn't defend himself. Then at the end of the movie, he has his powers again, and he returns to that same bar and confronts that bully, at, dressed as Clark Kent, not as Superman, and he uses his powers to beat the guy up throws him across the bar and then decides to insult him and the bar by making a comment about you know garbage you know being served to garbage or garbage serving garbage i don't know you know but in man of steel you know when in the scene where he goes to defend a waitress at the bar that he's working at because a guy was sexually harassing her you know the when he, when clark gets in his face the patron decides to be an asshole to him pours a pitcher of beer over his head, punches him, and then as Clark is walking away, the guy throws a beer glass or a beer can at him. You know? And rather than physically retaliating against him, he takes the guy's, you know, 14-wheeler, 16-wheeler, 18-wheeler, I don't know, and just destroys it on a bunch of power lines. Now, tell me, which of those versions of Clark Kent is the asshole there? Tell me. And the people saying that he didn't save anyone or that he didn't care about anyone else in the film are just straight up full of shit because he saved a lot of people in the movie if you actually paid attention. You know, he saved the men on the oral rig during the first act, you know, the first sequence that we see after after we, they leave Krypton. He saved his classmates on the school bus that w went in the bridge, went off the bridge. You know, he saved citizens and military personnel during the fight in Smallville. Oh, and he literally saved the entire planet when he destroyed the world engine. Oh, and speaking of the world engine, that leads to into the, another complaint that people had. Saying that there was too much city destruction, as if it's the first time such a thing had happened in a movie. Well, guess what, kids? Every superhero movie has had destruction of buildings. Yeah, don't believe me? I'll name a few. We have the Dark Knight trilogy. The Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, the X-Men movies, the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman films, Ang Lee's Hulk, several films of the MCU, even the Christopher Reeve Superman films had some destruction going on. Hell, even the fucking Power Ranger movies had buildings being destroyed, both in the 1995 film and the 2017 reboot. I don't remember seeing or hearing anyone giving a flying fuck about any of those movies doing it, but suddenly when Man of Steel did it, apparently that's not allowed anymore. Even though, <clears throat> again... Several MCU films have done the same thing and much worse since then, and nobody's complaining, but uh, whatever. I'll talk about that a little bit later on the next podcast, part two. And another complaint that a lot of people had about Man of Steel is the fight with General Zod. More specifically, the snapping of his neck. And people criticize this move. This move obviously never read a single Superman comic book ever, and they must, must also suffer from short-term memory loss, because Superman actually kills General Zod in the comics as well as, as in Superman 2. No, really, he does. You know, and he does it, and he killed General Zod in Superman 2 with a smile, 
Because remember, Superman has to smile all the time. And it was in the third act, while they're in the Fortress of Solitude. Zod loses his powers. Superman breaks his hand and pushes him off the icy cliff with a big smile on his face. No one seemed to be complaining about that. But then again, it was a different time, so who knows. Then in Man of Steel, when Superman snaps General Zod's neck, uh, you know, and he, do he does it because he had to. He didn't want to do it. He had to do it. That is why he dropped to his knees and screamed out in utter agony and pain because he killed one of his own people in order to save the only world he has ever known and it was the first time he had ever willingly taken another life. But again, he did it because he had to. And so the people saying, oh, why didn't he take Zod to the desert to fight? Why didn't he just cover Zod's eyes instead of snapping his neck? Well, first off, as I said earlier, the entire film was Clark Kent learning how to be Superman. He was learning how to be the hero. In, his, in the moment, he is only thinking about how can he stop Zod and his army and to stop them as quickly as possible because the world engine was going full force with terraforming Earth into, a, into making a new Krypton and time was running out fast. Second, there was no possible way for him to take Zod to a desert or anywhere else for that matter because Zod would never have given him the chance to do so. All Zod wanted to do was fuck Superman up and fuck Superman up big time. And lastly, covering his eyes? Really? Did you people not pay attention to the fight in Smallville where Feora, oh, by the way, Feora, she was beautiful. Anyway, but when Feora had her hands over Superman's face, covering his face, and when Superman shot the lasers out of his eyes, you know, that couldn't block them. Even with the Kryptonian armor on the hands covering his face, couldn't block that. I mean, obviously you weren't paying attention to that, you know, if you were complaining about it, because that's a stupid fucking idea. To think Superman covering Zod's eyes would have done shit. Seriously, people, pay attention to what you're watching. And the people who were complaining and saying that the movie should have had a Christopher Reeve nostalgic feel to it and, you know, need to be more like Christopher Reeve. That is literally what we got with 2006 of Superman Returns, and a lot of you shit on that movie too, and shit on it so, so, so bad. That it wouldn't surprise me if Brandon Routh had considered leaving acting in Hollywood altogether, just like Hayden Christensen did, after people shit on him for Star Wars. I mean, obviously he didn't leave because he's, you know, he was cast as Adam on the Legends of Tomorrow, but I'm sure he at least thought about it a time or two. Uh, now let's talk about the score of the film. Now, the score composed by the great Hans Zimmer to me is absolutely phenomenal is I consider it to be a masterpiece and it perfectly captures the presence and the essence of the film. And I know there are some who complain about the heavy use of drums uh, throughout the score and I kind of get it but I also loved it. You know it's powerful, it's exciting, especially the track Flight. My, my god, I get chills every time I listen to it. And this is not a, at all a knock on the score, the great score composed by the legendary John Williams from the 1978 film. And I believe 19, I believe he did Superman too, but I'm not sure. Now, his Superman theme is an iconic piece of cinema history.
it was the ringtone on my cell phone for a very long time. Until I listened to the Man of Steel soundtrack. Now I use several tracks from Hans Zimmer's score as my ringtones and as my alarm clocks. Yes, I'm one of those kind of fans, and I'm damn proud out of it. I mean, honestly, I don't know what more I can say about this movie, other than to encourage you all to watch it if you haven't yet. Watch it with an open mind. Forget the nostalgia, and just enjoy the movie. That's what I did. Can you? And that concludes part one of my five-part Release the Snyder Cut series. I hope you enjoyed hearing me ramble on for uh, however long I've been rambling on. And I hope you'll be back for part two, part three, part four, and part five. Until then, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time.